0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio, and our sponsors the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the College Futures Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Finsterwald. This week,
0: many people, including you and me, John, have been waiting for Governor Newsom to come to some agreement with the legislature on a plan for opening more schools in California. But as we record this podcast on Friday afternoon, no plan has been forthcoming yet. So when it comes out, we'll dig into
1: it. And uh, probably next week, we'll have a more detailed analysis. But there's still plenty to talk about. Later in the podcast, we are going to look at an issue that we haven't talked much about, but certainly is in the minds of parents and teachers. That's grading. How do we measure learning and assess individual students' progress or lack of it during the pandemic? This has presented a big dilemma for school districts and led to some innovative practices too, and it's now drawing the attention of legislators. First, however, let's shift gears
0: to higher education, which has not received as much attention as it should have during the
1: pandemic, at least compared to pre-K-12 education. Yes, it's almost as if the general view is that students are much older and should be able to cope much better than younger ones.
0: Well, as we know, that's not necessarily the case. We have with us Ed Source higher ed reporter Ashley Smith, who interviewed Joseph Castro. Is the new chancellor of the California State University System, with 23 campuses and nearly a half million students. It's the largest four-year university system in the country, so what happens at CSU affects not only California in a major way, but uh, arguably the whole country. Chancellor Castro has only been in office for just over a month. Uh, we think this is the first interview that he's given. Welcome, Ashley.
2: Hi, Lewis, it's good to be here.
0: So the chancellor has a very interesting background. He's a grandson of farm workers, uh, the first student in his family to attend college, and was president at Fresno State before becoming head of the whole system, and actually is the first person from inside CSU to become chancellor. So lots of eyes, on Chancellor Castro. Ashley, you asked him what his top priorities are and what did he say was his top priority now?
2: Well, Lewis, the number one priority is safely reopening campuses for fall 2021 uh, for in-person instruction. Obviously, we're in the middle of this pandemic, and he wants to bring students back. We don't know just yet if it'll be at 100 percent or it'll be 50 percent, but he is working toward some type of uh, in-person instruction uh, that is more than what they've been doing this past year
0: for this fall. Let's just hear what Chancellor Castro had to say on that subject.
3: We are still committed to return to a majority of in-person courses in uh, fall 2021. And that, of course, is contingent upon the conditions enabling us to do so. And if the course of the virus or data or vaccine availability Or if our medical experts indicate that that approach is no longer feasible, then we will make that adjustment. Well,
0: Ashley did refer to the issue of vaccinations. That's a big issue on the K-12 side of things. Did he say that that would be a requirement or how high is he setting the bar in terms of getting faculty, staff and or students vaccinated?
2: He didn't say that it would be a requirement or not. I believe reopening campuses, in his view, would depend on the availability of vaccines and that there is some willingness from faculty and students to be vaccinated. Uh, Really interesting that there are campuses, 13 of the 23 have been approved as vaccination sites for their regions, and possibly they would be the places vaccinating faculty and, and staff in the upcoming
0: months. Well, Ashley, looking to the fall, my understanding is that the number of applications for admissions to CSU has gone down a bit.
2: Yes, they are down slightly, about 5%. And, uh, you know, here's what the chancellor had to say about that.
3: It's still too early to tell. As you know, the, the process hasn't completely played itself out. And it is concerning that the FAFSA rates are lower Um, And certainly hearing about stories at some schools where the applications are much lower than they were before, that's all deeply concerning. At the same time, I can tell you we've been very aggressive in our outreach and um, trying to make sure that students and families know what they need to do next, and we welcome them to be part of the CSU.
0: So, Ashley, uh, Chancellor Castro did mention the FAFSA. I'm wondering, could you just explain what the FAFSA is?
2: The FAFSA is basically short for Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and it is the primary form that students, high school and college, fill out to apply for financial aid and grants. In California, we also have the DREAM Act application, which allows students who are undocumented or who participate in the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, to qualify for state financial aid.
0: You wrote about this issue that applications have gone down a bit. What's the reason for that, do you think?
2: They haven't just gone down a bit, but they've decreased significantly for low-income students and for students who in California would complete the DREAM Act application. So there's just limited outreach not on the part of high schools or counselors who typically do this work, but with high schools' classes moving online, it's just been difficult to get out there and encourage these students to complete the application.
0: Just to clarify, if you don't to fill out the FAFSA, then you won't be getting your financial aid, presumably.
2: Exactly. And the deadline for aid this year is March 2nd. However, students should apply. If they miss that March 2nd deadline, they should still apply afterward because you can apply any time of the year. It's just that at that point, you're kind of pushed to the back of the line. So the priority in California is given the deadline is March 2nd.
0: It's a bit of a bear to fill out, isn't it? Is that also a reason perhaps that people aren't filling it out?
2: Yes, it has a reputation for being very complicated, and uh, Congress has made steps over the last few years to simplify the process. There were some changes that Congress passed to simplify the form in December, but those changes won't go into effect until next year.
0: Nonetheless, actually I have to say that it does surprise me because filling out the FAFSA seems such a basic part of the application process that it's disturbing that students might not know about that.
2: Well, one interesting thing that I heard from a counselor is that all of the little triggers that happen in a high school, such as students talking with one another about college in a hallway or just seeing flyers or signs up or overhearing a conversation about college, that's not happening in an online setting. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that the numbers are down as much as they are.
0: Uh, Thanks for joining us, Ashley. Thanks, Louis. It was great to be here. John, I should point out that EdSource also ran a story this week. It was written by Michael Burke that shows that applications for admissions to the 10 campuses at the University of California have increased substantially, just the opposite of what is happening at CSU. No one is sure exactly what is going on, but at least one explanation is that because this year SAT or ACT admissions tests have been waived. Many students who might not normally have applied to UC have done so, and that includes a big bump in the number of applications from Black and Latino students, quite encouraging. And it's quite possible that some of the students who are applying to UC or might in the past have applied to CSU decided not to apply to CSU, but
1: too early to tell, really, what's going on. Well, and it could be, of course, that there's a lot of economic hardship going on, and students are rethinking about whether or not they want to go to CSU next year, and maybe they're going to community college instead. It is too soon. Well, John, talking about
0: tests, let's shift to pre-K-12 schools and what's happening on that front.
1: Well, we're pleased to have with us EdSource reporters Zadie Stavely and Sidney Johnson, who've been looking at the thorny issues of how to measure students' learning during the pandemic. Welcome, Sydney and Zadie.
4: Thanks, John. Thank you.
1: So, Sidney, let's start with you. You wrote an interesting piece about The grading problems that districts had is similar to what they had last year, but it continues. Now we're into a full year of how to grade, how to grade students' performance, recognizing that students are facing all kinds of challenges. Tell us about what you found.
4: It's unsurprising at this point that a lot of students and families are struggling with distance learning. And just one of the relics of that is a large surge in failing grades during the pandemic. Just as an example, Los Angeles Unified, there the number of D's and F's increased by about 9% just among high school students last fall alone. And they saw these rates of failing grades were much higher for groups that probably have less academic support at home. I'm talking about low-income students, homeless students, or students who have siblings that they may need to take care of. In addition, Black and Latino students saw a much greater increase compared to white and Asian students.
0: I thought that, like, last spring after the pandemic, that a lot of school districts, maybe all of them, suspended giving grades. And they went to some pass-fail or... Credit, no credit. Are the grades back this fall?
4: You're correct. A lot of school districts did what's called holding students harmless. They offered different types of strategies so students' grades wouldn't fall during kind of this immediate shutdown when school districts closed and, and really quickly pivoted to distance learning. But this fall, a lot of schools reverted back to that A through F grading setup. And a lot of that was because there were concerns around students maybe not being motivated and, and kind of needing those grades to kind of hold them accountable, as well as for high school especially, students need to submit grades for college applications. So last spring, the use UC and CSU said, you know, we'll accept pass-fail, um, do what you got to do. And then this fall, it was a little bit unclear. So right now, UC hasn't actually said whether or not they'll still accept pass-fail. CSU will. So, so they're not even on the same terms. And that's created a bit of a tension between schools that are trying to figure out, you know, how much grace to give students right now.
1: Well, there's no uniformity in the way that districts are responding, and and you did a quick survey of some districts, and you saw different variations as to how districts are accommodating students. What did you find?
4: One of the districts that I looked closely at is West Contra Costa Unified up, up here in the Bay Area. There, they've done a number of different things. For example, they actually shifted the weight of an F grade on the grading scale for high school and middle school students. So what that means is before a student would have to earn 59% of the grade to get an F. Now it has to be just 50%. And the idea there is still sticking with that A through F schedule or A through F setup, but trying to give students more of an opportunity to pass.
0: So I just wanted to bring Zadie in on this conversation regarding an issue that she addressed on another topic, and that's how do we assess progress of English learners? So those are kids who don't have English proficiency. Zadie, what's the situation there? I mean, we, There is a test that students are usually administered once a year to get a sense of where they are and what, what's happening on that front.
5: Yeah, so students uh, who speak another language at home have to take a test every year until they're considered fluent and proficient in English.
0: That's called the LPAC, right? We won't even spell it out. But it's that, <laughs> yes, it's that, known as the,
5: the LPAC. It's a fairly new test. Actually, it replaced the previous test a couple of years ago in 2018. So it's fairly new and it's had some tweaks. And at the same time as it's new, the pandemic came last spring. The students were in the middle of taking the test. Some of them had taken some portions of the test and had not finished it yet. Others had not started yet, you know, because it was just March when most schools closed. And last spring, the test was waived, along with all the other standardized tests in California. But then some district officials actually pushed pretty hard to get a remote test option and CDE came up with a remote test option, and they—you mean to
0: take it online, kind of thing, instead of in person—to take
5: the test online, which is pretty interesting because the way that the LPAC works is that you have to get tested both in speaking, listening, reading, and writing, and so part of it is like an usually an in-person test where someone has to speak to the student, listen to the student speak. And most of the test is available now on a computer, but it hadn't been available online before in a way that the test administrator didn't have to be in the same room as the person. And so that option became available in the fall, and districts had to test everybody who was a new student, so kindergartners and any students who were just now enrolling in school in California. It's a a federal requirement. It's not a test that parents can opt out of. So... The districts had to test new students, and some were tested online, some were tested in person, and they had the option of trying to make up some of the tests that were missed in the
0: spring. In general, taking these tests are not a good thing. I mean, you know, stress stress on students and so on and so Wouldn't it make sense to try to waive this test during the pandemic? I mean, why is this test important?
5: It's important because it shows how much progress students have made towards becoming proficient in English. So schools can use that information to figure out, you know, what groups English learners should be in when they're taking separate classes for English language development or tutoring or, you know, one-on-one sessions. They can also use it to figure out how well their programs have been working. There are a lot of problems, though, during the pandemic, and one of them is that families are experiencing really high levels of stress. Many families, especially in immigrant communities, are experiencing a lot of loss because of COVID, so they're losing family members or they're having family members get sick. And some of the district officials that I spoke with and county office of education officials that I spoke with said that, you know, they hear a lot, from teachers and families that scheduling the test is hard, partially because of those stresses.
1: Nonetheless, Zadie, there are advocates for English language learners who feel really strongly that this test is essential. Am I right? Or...
5: Yeah, there's a lot of concern both from advocates and from district officials and, you know, and from some parents. I think in general, families are not Necessarily advocating for their students to take tests, but I did speak with a parent whose student missed out on taking the test last spring. And she said, You know, I want my daughter to achieve fluency and be considered proficient so that she doesn't have to take this test anymore. She has to take it every single year. And um, she was concerned because she didn't feel that the school was really preparing her student to achieve fluency. And meanwhile, the pandemic came and she wasn't actually able to check how much progress she had done. So several people told me that they saw a silver lining in this, in that school districts and teachers may be uh, motivated to actually look at other measures and other ways of really looking at how their English learners are doing instead of just focusing only on the English proficiency test.
1: Well, Sydney, some of these same challenges and, and situations apply to the larger test, the Smarter Balanced test that all students are required to take in English, Language, Arts and Math. Now, that was suspended last year. What's the story with the coming year?
4: Like most things this year, it's kind of to be determined in a way. But right now, where it stands is that California is going to be going forward with the Smarter Balanced test. It poses a huge challenge to school districts, many of which are still you know, in distance learning and exactly how you manage having parents at home or not having parents at home or having Wi-Fi issues. How do you bring students back in small capacities to test? Those are all questions that school districts are now starting to think through because it's become a bit more clear that it looks like testing will continue. There were some rumors that maybe the new Ed Secretary would offer waivers like we're, like what were available last spring, but as of yet, that hasn't been offered. And at least in California, the State Board of Ed canceled its upcoming meeting or the meeting that was supposed to take place this week saying that it might be rescheduled if the U.S. Department of Ed releases new guidance on the tests.
1: Any idea what California would ask if they had a chance?
4: That was pretty clear. Um, if if there is a waiver, the majority of the board members were in favor of taking that waiver this year.
0: Thanks, Sydney, for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And Zadie uh, as well. Thank you. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Fensterwald.
0: Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week.